two. We are continuing on in our short series, Advent series. And uh, I'll be reading today from verses 25 to 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Gracious Father, we ask that a light of illumination would come to your people. Give us ears to hear and a heart to appreciate Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we, last time we looked at hope. The themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love, which we are looking at this month. Last time we looked at hope and understood hope as that permanent change that the world darkened by sin is undergoing because Jesus Christ has come. And today we are looking at peace, the peace that Jesus brings. If you had your ideal life, what would that life be? Your perfect world. Some of you who are very godly and of right mind would probably say just a huge library with books of theology. And it'd be wonderful to sit there in isolation and read and enjoy that all day long. Some of you younger ones might think Candyland. That's my ideal world. Just a land of sweets and sugar. We all have a ideal world. God has an ideal world. He had an ideal world. The perfect world where God would dwell with his people in harmony and in peace, mutual love and satisfaction with one another, that is the best of worlds. But because of sin, obviously, our imaginations for an ideal world, and in fact, the world we very much live in, is not ideal. It's not ideal for anyone, actually. Most of the time, our perfect world is a world which is customized by serving my self-interests. That's how we usually think of an ideal world. But that's not actually God's ideal world. His perfect world is, since he is without sin, best for all, himself and all who he creates. The ideal world which God creates and seeks to restore is what we understand by this word peace. 
Most often we think of peace as an inner calm, a tranquility of spirit. And no doubt, Christ gives that. But so much more is packed into a word where Simeon says, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. Peace and this ideal, perfect world is what Jesus brings. In what way does Jesus bring peace? He brings peace in such a way it leaves his followers ready to die. To leave everything this world has, the good, the bad, the ugly, and receive the fullness of the peace Christ brings. What can we say in our life? What can we point at in our life that would say, if I had that one thing, I, I'd, I'd just go, I would just die and go to heaven. I wouldn't have to live anymore. Can we say that really about anything? I mean, usually the things we want to acquire are things we then want to enjoy, right? If you are going to get married, I doubt Mary wants to go home to the Lord two days after her wedding. She wants to enjoy marriage. If you have kids, you want to enjoy your kids. If you want whatever gift it is, a lot of money, you got to spend the money to enjoy the toy you're going to buy for it. But with Jesus, the peace that he gives is such that it leaves the sinner ready to go home and to experience the peace in fullness. So we have a present peace that we have now, but the peace that Jesus brings is a later peace, a peace that we will experience much later, however, yet in an infinite measure. And what is the nature of this peace? It is a peace of wholeness, it is a peace of well-being, that in possessing Jesus, the sinner is made and feels complete. Every person who comes to Christ upon coming to Christ instantaneously and internally feels complete. They feel as if, you feel as if, finally, life makes sense. Not only is there no more hostility between me and God, but I've been put back together and I feel like I'm whole again. That's the peace Jesus brings. It includes the whole person. It, the peace the Lord brings is not only physical health, emotional health as well, material prosperity, good relations with the neighbor, and possessing spiritual life. That is the peace Jesus brings, a comprehensive and thorough, a whole being put back together again. To have God's peace is to experience life as God intended. I'm going to say that a few times throughout the sermon, and what I don't mean is that God was surprised and thwarted in his will. Obviously, he made all things very good, and the fall came in and ruined all things very good. But God's ideal world that he intends to live with 
people in is a world of love, as Jonathan Edwards describes heaven as a world of love. It's a world of joy. It is the idyllic life realized and fulfilled and experienced. And that comes with Jesus. So there are two dimensions of this piece I want to look at. It will take up the bulk of our time, and then we'll, in conclusion, flip back over to Luke and look at our friend Simeon and what he means when he says he is departing in peace. In one sense, peace is reconciliation. To be at peace is to be reconciled with a formerly hostile party. And in that sense, you're made whole. Hostility and warfare aren't the, the perfect opposites of peace. Last time we talked about that the Christ brings hope and peace and joy and love, and then consequently that would mean the world is full of the opposites of them. If not hope, despair. If not peace, restlessness. Or just frankly, we're humpty dumpty and we're broken. Joy, sorrow. Love, hate. Or I think maybe more to the point, apathy. But peace is multidimensional, and one of them is reconciliation. Peace is reconciliation, hostility and warfare being removed, being removed. God never intended to live with Adam and Eve and, and humanity in a state of war in the garden, but a state of peace. He's walking through the cool of the garden, talking with his people, them talking to him. That is the ideal life. But this hostility is here and it courses through the veins of all of us. And we are left at war with one another and at war with God committing acts of crime, filling our land with violence. There are a few passages I want to flip to, and you could probably flip over to the latter half of Isaiah because I want to read a few passages out of there. But the book of Isaiah is a wonderful book, and the latter half, approximately 40 on, is called the Book of Comfort. And it's an appropriate book to study as we talk about what kind of peace or comfort Jesus brings, right? But speckled in that book are also passages that show our current situation, how we don't have peace and Jesus needs to bring it. Isaiah 57, 1, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away and no one understands. That's a land of no peace. It's a land of violence where the righteous man perishes and no one even cares. No one even cares. Isaiah 59, 8, the way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. They're not just talking about a mutual love for one another. The land is broken, divided. It is not the land God intended for his people to live in. So not, not only is there hostility between man and men, but also there's hostility between man and his creator. 
There is a scathing rebuke in Isaiah 58 too, where Isaiah says about Israel that they draw near to God as if they were a nation that did righteousness. Scolding rebuke to Israel, saying you draw near to God as if you're living righteously. The audacity to draw near to God while you are living unrighteously. Israel is thus backwards, topsy-turvy, upside down, conducting themselves in exactly the opposite way God intended. And this all, of course, because of sin. And this is the shattered, relationally shattered world the Messiah comes to. This is the relationally shattered world the Messiah comes to. We were just reading last night in our own um, kind of Advent book with the kids. Jesus comes to suffer because we are sufferers. He was born in a feeding trough. And I asked the kids, do you think mom would have liked it if she gave birth and had to put one of you in a little bucket? where the donkeys and cattle would eat out of? (laughs) They didn't have a concept for that. We shouldn't have a concept for that, but we do because the world is broken and fallen. But Jesus comes into a relationally shattered world and he brings peace. He starts putting pieces back together again. Not only reconciling brother to brother, as some of our Christian, Christian hymns say, but also sinner to God. Colossians 1.19, Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, this is Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Did the blood of his cross reconcile stubborn sinner like you and me to God? Yes. But in a very mysterious way, Paul says he reconciles all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, I don't want to begin to dwell and get into that, but there is a comprehensiveness of sin that is a veil over the entire cosmos, over all of heaven and earth. And Jesus, by his death, is making peace. He's reconciling all that is astray, all that is wayward, all that is at war with God, and bringing them back to where they belong in the proper orbit around the Lord. Salvation, thus, is a restoring wholeness, a restoring peace to man. Removing sin from man and situating you, in a positive relationship with God as if you were designed to experience. Think about that. There are no doubt times in which we feel like just a little glimmer of heaven has been, has penetrated and pierced our heart. And we think, wow, the the joy and the, the tears of joy and the ecstatic feeling I have over the gospel, over this, over this God, over this Lord who is so kind to me, that's heaven and kind of concentrate form just for a brief, brief moment. 
And that pales in comparison to the complete ecstasy which the sinner has, you have, because of Christ. No longer at war, but at peace. So first, peace is reconciliation. And then secondly, peace is order. Order. When a sinner receives Christ, they are immediately thrust into a world as God intends. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean the toast that falls to the ground always falls butter side up. Sometimes it falls butter side down. But it does mean God is working all things out for your good because you are now in a kingdom which he is Lord and sovereign over, whether it's toast or car accidents or injuries or whatever it may be, you you have been positioned and situated in God's ideal world. Now that ideal world is still working itself out as Christ makes sense out of chaos and puts order back together. But it nevertheless means that that is the kingdom we live in. We are no longer associated with the darkness, but we are situated in light. Yahweh, as creator, has an order. He has an order for all things. And it's just, it's not divine OCD, it's goodness. It is goodness and righteousness. Every time you see something on the news and you have welling up within you a strong sense of, no, that isn't right. That's because God has given you a conscience to know right from wrong. Even the non-believer has that. You as a believer, it's, it's been tinkered with and moved and shaped so that that compass is actually pointing generally north. But he has an order and the foe to his order is anything that disrupts it, namely sin, the devil, and those who seek to reject him. So this present order as is seen like we saw in earlier, Social injustices, sure, but all marks of sin, natural natural catastrophes, car accidents, broken moral compasses, injuries. Sin has affected all things, leaving all things broken. And so Jesus comes to undo all the brokenness and to put all things right side up. So there's a reason why when the Christians speak in in a public sphere, the public sphere, which is at odds with God and alienated from God says, you sound backwards. It's because you're right side up and they're backwards. (laughs) It's when when the apostles went out and preached and the world and the, the enemies of the gospel says, you're turning the world upside down. No, they're turning the right side back up. We're already living upside down. And unfortunately we're too used to upside down. But Christ is on the throne and he with you, is making all things new. So it's very important to know what scripture did Jesus quote from to kick off his ministry, okay? 
There's a different starting point in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Since we're in Luke for chapter two today, two chapters later in chapter four, what scripture does he quote? He's in Nazareth. Can you know hometown welcome? No. This is the verse he quotes. It's Isaiah 61. This is, again, taken out of the book of comfort. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You, you can see the reversal. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Why is Jesus quoting this? Why is he quoting this? He's quoting Isaiah 61 to say, you live in a broken fallen world where everything is topsy-turvy, upside down and broken. I am going to fix it. And so he says, you were made to be poor. God didn't give you a heart so they would be broken, but they would be filled with joy. You're given legs to run, not to be lame. You're given eyes to see beauty, not to have it shut by sin. Sin has veiled all things in creation and Jesus has come to show the beauty and the goodness and the righteousness which comes with his kingdom. The peace that comes with his kingdom. When sin is on the throne, it's misery for all. For all. When Christ is on the throne, wholeness, peace, Reconciliation and proper order. Jesus' advent and kingdom fixes all things. And now I want to read a, just a, I just kind of want to unload a clip of various passages in Isaiah 50 and 60, in the 50s and 60s, to show you this topsy-turvy nature of life and how he is coming to restore this. So you can flip if you can keep up, but I don't anticipate you doing that. But listen to this way in which the prophet Isaiah talks about the effectiveness of Jesus's ministry and what he plans to do. It is a reversal of the original reversal, undoing sin. It says, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins, ruins shall be rebuilt. You ever, have a, you ever had an unmet desire? Unmet desires linger and bring bitterness. Ever feel weak? Jesus is coming to make your bones strong and to prepare you, or as our Christmas hymn says, make you fit for heaven. He restores. 
He says, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Does that sound familiar? Overseers, taskmasters? Who are those grimy people in Egypt causing Israel to slave away, but their overseers and taskmasters saying, build, build, build. We don't give a rip about how you feel. Just build. And God says, I'm going to make your overseers peace. Your taskmaster is going to be called righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. Ye shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. You ever experience unjustness? Injustice? Unjust friends? Unjust employers? Unjust taskmasters? Tired of the news channel? Jesus restores. He restores all these things. He says, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You ever have sorrow? He's putting it away. He says, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. That's your name. My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. You ever been tempted to think God's left you? He's forsaken you. He's broken his promises to you. Jesus is undoing all of that. Goes on, behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. You ever experience regret? The past ever haunt you? He's undoing it all. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Life ever seem like it's flying by too fast? Does your mind think you're younger than you actually are? (laughs) Jesus, these are real things. The poetic imagery we have from Isaiah brings it very much home. These are things we all experience. You ever want to enjoy good moments and let it last? Jesus restores that. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. Are you tired of the devil? And I guess in a very practical way, some of you experience this very, very much for real. Tired of wolves getting after your livestock? The final crushing of the devil is coming. It is coming. Jesus, this, this is just a smattering of verses. You can go on and on. I encourage you, read Isaiah 56 to 66. 
and just soak in the benefits of Jesus' advent. Just sit there and soak in all the promises that comes because of Jesus' advent. It is the ideal life coming by Christ so that all that is wrong in this world is put away and peace is on the throne. I was reading a few, a few days ago in Second Chronicles, a real page turner, as you know. But this individual did strike me, Asa. Now we know all the kings in the Old Testament in some way point to or give expectation for the Messiah, the perfect king, right? And you could read the couple chapters on Asa and be like, wow, that guy had it going. And then you read the last chapter on Asa and you think, you bonehead. God just caused you to defeat the Egyptian army of one million people and now you're trembling over this small little drive-through army. What are you doing? And because of that, God's going to rip the kingdom away from you. And he does. So ignore that side of Asa just for a second. But that does tell us every other king is a letdown. Jesus does not let his people down. He doesn't turn to the world. He doesn't turn to the devil. He doesn't make allies with Ahab or anybody else, Syria. He needs none of that. He has all power and authority, and he will crush his opponents by himself. Back to Asa for a moment. Asa has this, he gets installed as king. He builds fortified cities. He defends is, uh, Judah from Zerah, this Egyptian with a million-man army. He takes down idols. I think it's either I think it's either him or Jehoshaphat. Takes down, removes his queen mother because she's off in La La Land sacrificing the idols still. He cuts down those idols, burns them, makes them ash, and deposes her. She has no authority anymore. He is bringing peace. Judah and Israel was just split. You know, he's a couple grandkids away from David. Asa is. And the kingdom is split, but he's, he's centering Judah again, and he's removing the idols, and he's causing the land to be, as it says in that chapter, at rest. And it says he gives his people peace. It doesn't mean he just gives them peace from warriors and hostility. He brings shalom. He brings the wholeness and the proper order and the reconciliation that a king should bring. But it doesn't last. But it does with Christ. It does with Christ. Christ's kingdom lasts. So, that's all a word study on peace. We flip back to our friend Simeon in Luke chapter 2, and we have this profound admission. Lord, in 2.29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. This is what Simeon thinks. He doesn't just think, I have an inward tranquility, even though that is true peace. 
what he thinks is, I am holding in my arms the bringer of shalom. I am holding in my arms the one who sets the world right. I've lived a long time, Simeon says, and now that I'm even holding this baby, take me home. I am ready to die because I know when I die, I will only experience this peace in full measure. Simeon saw Jesus, understood the peace he brings, the wholeness he brings, and says, I'm ready to go home. Are we? You receive Christ, are you ready to say, take me home? I'm ready to die. Only Jesus gives peace in such quantity and of such quality where the sinner can say, I don't want anything else. I just want more Christ. He didn't say this because he's old. He was old. As it says in I don't know where it says it. I don't think it does say it. I think most commentators just conclude that he was an old man. But he says this because of the spirit that was upon him. Look there in verse 25. He's Simeon. He's righteous and devout, waiting for the what? Consolation of Israel. In my opinion, you could capitalize that C. That's a title for the Messiah. The consolation of Israel, the comfort, the peace bringer of Israel. And it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. And in verse 26, it says the Holy Spirit revealed to him he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. And in verse 27, it says again that the Holy Spirit was in him as he came into the temple. He was ready to die because he was with the Spirit. In fact, you can do a study through the first four or five, six chapters of Luke and see the ministry of the Spirit all over the place. Zechariah, Mary, Simeon, Jesus' temptation. The Holy Spirit is what made Simeon ready to take this peace in full measure. And you have the same Spirit you have the same spirit. Jesus says in John 14, I'm going to send the other helper, the Holy Spirit. And later on, he says, I am sending you my peace. Might be worthwhile to say, maybe that peace should be capitalized. The very peace which Jesus had throughout his entire earthly life Jesus gives to us. So as we have a, a room full of people, most of us Christians, have you thought that the peace Jesus brings is intended to make you want more? 
And also, have you thought that the peace Jesus brings wrought in you by the Spirit leaves you generally unhappy until you have it in full measure? The reason why we have a kind of a holy frustration in this life. We see on social media or on the news channel, crime going every which way, inventors of crime and evil. And we think, can we even like, can we slow that train down a little bit? This is getting worse by the second. There is a holy and a righteous discontented, discontentedness that the believer has put in you by the Spirit because you, like anybody else in the Lord, isn't satisfied until the peace is fully experienced. He brought the peace at his first advent and he will consummate that and bring it in totality at his second advent. And we wait in between. We wait with hope, but we also wait with this promise that he is making all things new. Former things are forgotten. Only the new creation, only new things are ahead. Let's pray.